0: Thank you for listening to Eclipsed Epics. Season two, Episode 3, The Great War. Last time we talked about the Russo-Japanese War and the subsequent, slash concurrent, Russian Revolution of 1905. We also examined the waxing and waning relationships between the Tsar and his Grand Duchy. We ended with the start of the Great War for Russia, the Battle of Tannenberg and the evolution of the war to trench warfare. Some might call it devolution, but I'm going to call it evolution because there's actually no such thing as devolution. But going back to the Great War, there was one Tsars general in 1916 that attempted to break this stalemate and momentarily succeeded. General Alexei Brusilov would ever so briefly provide a ray of sunshine in an otherwise dismal Russian experience in the First World War. Brusilov provided this ray by looking at what exactly was going wrong for the past two years, correctly assessing the flaws, and putting workable solutions into the field, though not without a price. Brusilov saw too many men wasted in attacks that had little or no preparation. His remedy, which did not take genius, was to honestly prepare his troops for the upcoming offensive. He actually conducted run-throughs of the offensive in real-life recreations that modeled the actual upcoming battle. Also, at least in this instance, uncoded messages were not released into the air. So the Russians maintain a level of secrecy about the Brusilov offensive. Lastly, Brusilov incorporated a combined arms element to his offensive. Combat arms, like infantry and artillery that were once separate, now were commanded to work together to increase the effectiveness of that offensive. Here, in 1916, we see the embryonic phases of the combined arm tactics that will blossom in the next wars winning offensives in the fields of France and the beaches of Iwo Jima. Here, Brusilov combined a prepared infantry with a creeping artillery barrage. That is basically a wall of artillery shots just meters ahead or yards, if you're in the United States, yards ahead of the advancing infantry until, in theory, the infantry is right on top of the enemy. This was a complete, although bloody, success for the Russians. This offensive cost them at least 500,000 soldiers, but the Central Powers lost between 1 million and 1.5 million soldiers, so the principle of combining different arms was starting to show its utility. Soon, tanks, airplanes, and even ships were added to the concept of the combined arms assault, but the growth of this concept was anything but linear, something the Russians are going to have to learn the hard way, and they definitely did over the next two decades. This offensive highlights the 19th century mentality of generals, which resulted in years of them displaying the classic definition of insanity. Traditionally, it is the generals of the First World War who get the most withering criticism for their inability to recognize the new reality of post-Napoleonic warfare and updating their doctrine accordingly. The best example of this is Sir Douglas Haig, who repeatedly gets referred to as a butcher for his offensive on the Somme. The Somme is right up there with Verdun as one of the costliest battles in the whole long war. But before we judge these men too quickly, we have to jump in our hot tub time machines and set it back to the 1800s to emphasize the massive changes these generals had to deal with. There we see Napoleon, one of the greatest generals in all of history, surveying his battlefield with the ability to spot weaknesses and act in a moment's notice. He can actually see an opening in the opponent's order of battle and call his cavalry in to exploit it. Napoleon actually could put his eyeballs on where his own line needed reinforcement and where his cannons needed to be directed. This ability to actually see what is happening and make adjustments on the fly was an ability that generals enjoyed from warfare's very infancy. Fast forward to the Great War. Generals now had that ability taken from them. The enormity of the material that needed to sustain the military, personnel needed to sustain the war itself, and the distance of this war would overwhelm anyone. Don't believe me? Napoleon Bonaparte had about 1 million men at his disposal. Helmut von Moltke, the German military leader at the Great War's beginning, had 4.5 million. That is about five times more, which sounds manageable at first. But if you look at it more closely, that increase does not correspond into a linear increase logistically. It is more of an exponential one. If you look at the battlefield that von Malky oversaw, he was responsible for a battlefield that ranged from Paris to Petrograd and everything in between, far from the confines of limited war. For example, the distances were so vast that French Commander in Chief Joseph Joffre had to employ a Grand Prix race car driver to get a true sense of his battlefield. While I don't think these generals, especially the later ones like Nivelle, von Falkenhayn, and even Haig, deserve zero blame, it is still going to take some time to adjust doctrine to reflect this new reality. Regardless, The Germans at this time were using the stalemate to concentrate on the defensive, especially on the Western Front. The numbers both economically and the raw humans brought to bear against the Germans were starting to take its toll on the German Empire. Even though it was killing more of the Entente soldiers than it was losing, the Germans and the Central Powers generally had fewer soldiers to lose due to having lower populations to draw from than the Entente. So German strategists had an existential dilemma on their hands. How were they going to keep or increase the rates at which they killed Entente soldiers while simultaneously minimizing the amount of German lives lost? To answer this, the German leaders came up with an ingenious idea in all of its inhumanity. Defense in depth. At its core, defense in depth is based on the idea of trading territory for lives. Under this doctrine, the German army would not be in charge of holding a specific location or line. The construction of a labyrinth of pillboxes and choke points were designed to absorb the onslaught of any entente offensive. The design would be a multi-layered system that made it increasingly harder for the men of any offensive to penetrate to the next level. So let's imagine yourself as an Anton soldier who had to go over the top, as they call it. You're in the first wave, sprinting through no man's land in a hail of artillery, machine gun, and rifle fire. But when you get there, you find it emptied. And the there I'm talking about is the enemy trenches that you've been looking at this whole time. So you got to continue on, right? Knowing the germs have to be somewhere. Say you have some of these military machines called tanks. Slow, lumbering metal death traps designed to be the new, 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 war-winning technology. These probably encounter obstacles to render them completely useless, but you still survive in advance. Most likely, you see barbed wire ahead, with some openings that everyone mistakes for holes blown in the line from your artillery. In reality, the Germans left these holes for you. Your friends go through the trap and are mowed down by rifle fire and machine gun fire until all of a sudden, nothing. You assume you've penetrated the line and continue on as fast as possible, when in actuality, you've only cleared the first German line. You continue another couple kilometers, probably a mile, once again for my United States listeners, and you come upon yet stiffer obstacles and choke points, where machine gun fire is more sustained. Chances are very slim your force will emerge from the second line with any finding potential left. But let's say you do. Let's get crazy. There is most likely a third line, yet more kilometers or miles ahead, and even more reserves behind that. And oh yeah, the Germans are shelling you this whole time in between the lines. This system of defense was a wild success, so much that the Finns adopted it in the decades to come as the winds of war started blowing in from the east. Speaking of independent Finland, Tsar's Russia had a devil of a time in the Great War, despite the success of the Brusilov Offensive. Soon after the war started, Nicholas II decided to lead his great empire from the front, 50 miles in the rear to what he thought would be a great victory, leading the Romanov resurgence that he knew was right on the horizon. Instead, what was right on the horizon was the complete incompetence of the Tsar laid bare for all to see. Since Nicholas decided to lead from the front, all the many, many failures of the Russian war effort could not be blamed on some lackey. The blame and the buck was right at Nicholas's doorstep. This crumbling imperial edifice, in combination with a war that pushed previously stable nations to the brink, finally found its logical conclusion. The February Revolution in March 1917. Protests regarding the war, the press of bread, and generally life under this regime had been going on for some time now. But it was the worker strikes in Petrograd that finally put the nail in the coffin of the Romanov dynasty. When the Tsar heard of these strikes from his wife, he was not in his capital. He was leading Russia's bungling war effort from the front. So, while leading his great nation, Tsar Nicholas did not see the protests for what they truly were, a people desperately pleading for the most basic of needs like food and shelter. In response, the Tsar quite rationally called in the Cossacks, a special horse-mounted military unit, to violently put down the strikes. When they refused to fire on the crowd because it was mostly made up of women, the protesters were emboldened. From there, it was a hop, skip, and a jump to Tsar Nicholas II, the last Romanov, abdicating his throne. In its place, the provisional government took power. This government was an uneasy coalition between liberal reformers, leftists, socialists, and even some communists based loosely on the federated republican system that the United States is said to have. The unease of this coalition was most likely because the Kerensky government, as it came to be known, still owed allegiance to the Entente and therefore had to keep fighting this unpopular war. So if you look at the breakdown of the Kerensky government, you're going to see socialists, you know, hard leftists and the communists in that uneasy coalition say, we don't want to be in this war anymore. We, we overthrew the Romanovs because we don't want this at all. So this is happening at the same time that more extreme voices who aren't in this coalition, like the Bolsheviks, were preaching bread, land, and an end to the war. That slogan was very alluring to the average Russian, now citizen, fed up with high food prices, lack of resources, and a war that seemed it would never, ever end. This situation came to a head in 1917. Protesters yet again marched on Petrograd, which resulted in the provisional government putting the Bolsheviks in jail, forcing Vladimir Lenin to flee to Finland. When a popular Russian general, Kornilov, decided that Kerensky and his government were the problem plaguing Russia because of an error in communication worthy of a sitcom, according to Mike Duncan, he gathered a force and marched it on Petrograd to effect a necessary change. Grunsky, thinking Kornilov was the problem, responded by freeing and arming the very force that wanted him gone months back. That's right, the Bolsheviks. Kornilov's march on the Russian capital was eventually rebuffed, but now the provisional government had a bigger problem to solve, an armed, emboldened group of Bolsheviks that remembered the July days. So what came quickly was the October Revolution in, of course, November 1917, and quickly after that, the fall of the Kerensky government. Soon after that, the Bolsheviks seized power under Vladimir Lenin, newly returned from Finland, a place that is going through its own upheaval. And next week we will discuss the result of that upheaval. Hint: it's more dead bodies. But before we go, I would like to update you guys on something I mentioned in episode 2.0 or the introduction to season two of Eclipse Epics. Um, if I, if you guys remember correctly, I give you a rant. I ran you down things in my personal life that were happening as, um, I was trying to research the next season. And one of the things that was prominent in it was my dog, Acacia. Um, I, am I'm, I'm guessing that if you're listening to this and you're hearing the tone of my voice and the, uh, health problems you hit, she had you're probably guessing right at what i'm going to say next uh me and the other dog's owner um made a quality of life decision for acacia and now she's no longer in pain anymore and i only say any of this to say uh if you were wondering where the episode was last week um I was dealing with the outfall of that decision. I'm still dealing dealing with it. It's been a little more than a week since we did it. But uh, I'm still dealing with those things. But I tried to promise myself that I would record once a week unless something major happened. And last week something major happened. And uh, I very much loved acacia she would she very much made me into the man i am today and i appreciate her life a lot and i'm gonna love her a lot and i'm gonna miss her a lot so without taking any more of your time i hope you guys have a good week and i'll talk to you guys next week